Uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, grab them out again if you've put them away, silly. Um, and then we'll be in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, uh, dealing with uh, perhaps one of the, the more popular and well-known portions of Mark's gospel. Uh, I want to start with an observation. Uh, one of the things I'm sure you've realised since you've arrived at university is that not all teachers are created equal. So maybe you experienced that reality not just this year but this morning. Uh, it doesn't take you long to find out that some teachers are just fantastic uh, and others are just dreadful. Uh, before I went into Christian ministry, I studied engineering. And when you study engineering, you study these things called matrices. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have in my notes here, I don't know whether you've seen these beasties, but obviously you've seen these beasties. Uh, This has ended uh, many, many an engineer's career. They're horrible, uh, and they've been the bane of students' lives for decades. Now, when I went through as a student all those years ago, there was a tutor on campus at my university called Milan Pahor. Now, if you haven't heard of him, that's okay. You can join the Milan Pahor Appreciation Society. It only has about 2,500 members, all students, graduates of my uni. Uh, And the reason he has an appreciation society is because if you gave that man a matrix and a piece of chalk, I don't know what floats your boat, maybe it's watching Federer play or watching the Russian ballet, it was magic, it was beautiful. And the reason that it was so fantastic is because he took what was complex and unintelligible and really something that made you want to vomit, and he took that complexity and he made it simple, and he made it obvious. And people would skip their tutorials because it was a big kind of first-year cohort and everyone was streamed and so the, par- uh, the tutorials were parallel. And they would skip their tutorials and cram into his. And so literally, I don't have to even make this up, people were literally standing al- along the back wall and hanging out the door of his room. So if you're kind of imagining back to Mark chapter 2, the hearing, healing of the paralytic, this is basically mathematical Jesus, right? <laughs> people have crammed in to hear him teach. Um, he was a great teacher. I mean, they never really kind of lowered a failing student into, 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 through the roof of his tutorial room. Uh, so he, he never quite got there. But the, the parallels between him and Jesus were phenomenal. People would flock from all over campus to hear him teach. Now, despite the many parallels between Paho and Jesus, I want to say that there was one key difference between the two. Paho was a great teacher and Jesus wasn't. Now, I don't know whether that makes you raise an eyebrow, uh, because I thought that at least the one thing that the believing and the unbelieving world could agree on was the fact that Jesus was a great teacher. You might quibble over the Son of God stuff, but when it came to communication, Jesus was second to none. And I think people usually think that because he spoke in parables. Uh, Parables are basically just stories with a meaning. Uh, And apparently, according to these people, Jesus' brilliance was in his ability to take what was profound and cast it into everyday terms. So he'd use uh, parables about farming and, and weddings and fishing and baking, things that the average Israelite could instantly relate to. And, and people write books on Jesus and his teaching style and how to mimic it because he was supposedly such a great teacher. But I want to ask the question, is that actually true? Because when you get down to it, Jesus' parables are not straightforward. In fact, they're some of the most confusing parts of Scripture that you will read. This is from Mark chapter 2. It's wrong on the slide there. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 22. And this is one of his brief parables. He said, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. 
Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So helpful if you're fixing wineskins. But if you actually want to know the real meaning of that parable and nobody's ever told you it before, good luck. It is obscure. And so you're left asking the question, I think, that if this is what parables are and if they're so unclear, then why did Jesus use them? In today's passage, we come across perhaps the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught, the parable of the sower. Some of you probably will know it off by heart without even having needed to memorise it. It's that well known. And, and in the passage that we look at today that has this parable, there's three parts. We see the parable itself in verses 3 to 9, the explanation of the parable in verses 14 to 20, and then sandwiched in between those two things, there's a private meeting between Jesus and his disciples. And it's there that he answers the question as to why he uses parables. And I think that answer will surprise you. Turns out that Jesus uses parables because he doesn't want people to understand. And with that statement, that's where we're going to start. And then we'll circle back around to the parable itself. So come with me. Let's have a look at verses 10 to 12, the purpose of the parables. Now, let's set the scene. Verse 1, Jesus is by the lake. Uh, He begins teaching because he's a renowned teacher. A great crowd gathers, and it's so large that he's forced to get into a boat. And so they're kind of all pressing around each other, pressed onto the shore. Jesus is out on the boat teaching them. And we see there in verse 2 that he begins to teach them many things by parables. And the first cab off the rank is the parable of the sower. Now, we'll get to the actual content of the parable in a moment, but the thing that I want uh, us to kind of observe at this point is that as he gives it and talks it out, people don't get it. Not even the 12 disciples. These are the guys who are closest to him. They don't understand what he's saying. And so we read there in verse 10 when he was alone, the 12 and some of the others that were with them gather around him and they ask him. And and it's like, Jesus, you you just told us a whole bunch of stuff about seeds and and a farmer and we just didn't get it. What, What are you talking about? And Jesus responds to them there in verse 11, and he says this, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Now observe what Jesus is saying there. He tells the disciples that there are two groups of people in the world, in that crowd, the insiders and the outsiders. To those on the inside, they have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, which means that when Jesus teaches, they understand what he's driving at. They might not understand fully or even at all in the moment uh, like we see here, but they have been granted by God the key, the secret to understanding Jesus' message. Now contrast the insiders with the second group of people, the outsiders. See, to them, everything remains in parables. They will see, but they won't perceive They'll hear, but they won't understand. So the thing to get is that parables are not teaching tools. They don't kind of take complex spiritual realities and then make them clear and accessible to everyone. They're sorting tools. They're like swords. They divide. To one group of people who have been given the mystery of the gospel, they reveal. But to the other group of people, all they do is conceal. Now, that, of course, I think raises a really legitimate question for us. Why does God do that? Why parables at all? Couldn't he just be clear? Couldn't he just say it up front? Doesn't that just make more sense? Isn't that what Jesus came along to do? So rather than speak in riddles, why didn't Jesus just kind of turn up and say, hey, guys, I just want you to know I'm God's king. 
If you repent of your sin, you believe in me, you follow me, you will receive salvation and eternal life. Why, why didn't he just say that? Well, our answer is in the next verse, in verse 12. The reason things on, uh, are in parables to those on the outside is so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, I read this passage with a student last week and he read that verse. He was like, hang on, did, that, did I read that right? And if that's what you're thinking, good, because that tells me that you've read it right. That's exactly what it's saying. Believe it or not, Jesus is saying that he talks in parables because he doesn't want people to understand. Because if they understood, they might repent and he would have to forgive them. And he doesn't want to. That's why he uses parables. Now, just let the implications of that sink in for a second. Doesn't that just screw with all your assumptions? Because I thought the point of Jesus coming to teach and to die and to rise to new life again was so that people, especially the Israelite people, could be saved. And here's Jesus intentionally preventing that reality. So what's going on? Well, Jesus here is quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, God commissions the prophet Isaiah to go and speak to his people Israel. But he tells him to go and speak in such a way that Israel won't understand. And it's because God has resolved to judge his people. Now, you might think, hey, that's a bit rough. But remember Israel's history. Yeah? Time and time again, Israel has rejected God, the God who saved them from slavery in Egypt and instead turned to foreign gods. And time and time again, God warns them. He sends prophets. He speaks to them. But generation to generation, they persist in that sin. And God is patient and God is merciful. But then as with anybody who is slow to anger, like our God is slow to anger, eventually he gets angry and he sends Babylon and he destroys Israel from the land. And by quoting this passage, what Jesus is signaling to us is that at this particular point in salvation history, as Jesus incarnated comes to teach, God has determined to do the same thing again. His people have persisted in sin And so like Isaiah, Jesus will speak in a way that hardens hearts and confirms unbelief rather than the other way around. It's a heavy truth. Now, of course, we know that there's more to this picture because in hardening his people, God would bring about the crucifixion of Jesus. His people would betray Jesus, kill him, and he would become the means by which God saved his people. And so even in evil, God was working Good, And when we come to the book of Acts and we see all throughout the New Testament, thousands upon thousands of Israelites hear the message preached clearly and they repent and are forgiven. But the thing to understand is that at this point in Mark's narrative, God is making a declarative statement about who will hear and who will not. And the thing that we learn from this is this. God is sovereignly in control of salvation. He determines who will hear and understand And he determines who will hear and fail to understand. And this is really important for us to get. Remember those two groups of people, the insiders and the outsiders. What determines whether you're on the inside or on the outside? I'll tell you what it doesn't determine. It's not your cleverness. 
If you're a Christian and you think the reason that you're a Christian is because you looked at the Bible, when you looked at the Bible or when you heard the message of the gospel and you were able to determine its truth because of your superior rationality or your clarity of vision or you just didn't have the hang-ups that other people had, there was something about you that it just made sense to you, then you need to look again there at verse 11. Because what does Jesus tell his disciples? The only reason that they can understand is because the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to them. You see, that's the reason you're a Christian. That's the reason you have come to see the truth in the message of the Christian gospel. It's because God, in his sovereign mercy, changed your heart and opened your eyes to see the message for the truth that it is. And I think what that does is that drives us to humility and to prayer. Humility... Uh, Because the only difference between you in here and them out there is God's intervention. You're not morally or intellectually superior. I'm sorry to burst that bubble. What you are is somebody who has been given the secret by God. You're given it. You don't do anything. You just receive it. Uh, But not just humility. It drives us to prayer. Because if this is the case... And if we want people to come and hear Jesus speak, and when he speaks to understand him, whether it's reading Mark Uncover with a friend or inviting someone to church or or, or whatever else it is, then God is the only one who can do it. And we see here in this passage how that truth plays out in Jesus' use of the parables. So that's the purpose of the parables. What about the parable itself? I think, you know, if we kind of let all of that settle down, uh, it's easy to hear that and then kind of just conclude that, you know, well, if that's the purpose of the parables and, and that's the case, then there's not much we can do when, when Jesus speaks, right? Uh, you'll either get it or you won't. Uh, and you've got to be careful, I think, at this point, because that sort of thinking can lead to a kind of fatalism that kind of throws all the responsibility back on God and we just kind of sit back and, and wait for him to sovereignly act. Now, I told you before, I studied engineering. I also worked as an engineer. And at one particular point, I worked at a place called Memcor. Now, and while I was there, I, I met a guy who I started evangelizing. And as I did it, I, evangelist dream, it turned out that he already knew and believed the gospel. I was like, this is so good. I don't have to do anything. So I just asked him, then why aren't you a Christian? And he said, oh, it's because God hasn't changed my heart yet to accept the message. He was just sitting there waiting for something to happen. He'd understood God's sovereignty, but he had failed to understand that in some mysterious way, God still calls us to respond and holds us accountable for that response. And we see that mysterious dynamic in this passage because notice how the the parable begins and ends. Do you see it there? Have a look in verse 3. Jesus starts by saying, listen. And then he ends by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And in fact, if you trace this throughout the whole of chapter 4, 13 times in this chapter you see verbs of hearing used. And so God's sovereignty notwithstanding, it is Jesus' expectation that there will be those there who hear and will understand. And so what he calls us to do as we hear the parable is to listen. So how about we do that now? Let's have a look at the parable. The parable at its heart, I think, is very simple. Uh, Jesus begins in verse 3 and he tells us this. A farmer goes out to sow his seed Uh, And then the rest of the parable is a description of the four different soils that the farmer's seed falls on. 
Uh, so let's do a brief survey. The first soil. The first soil is the path. It's a bit of a sorry excuse for a soil. It's kind of hard-packed ground. People have been walking on it, so the seeds kind of just flicker out there and they just can't penetrate. So what happens when you throw food on the ground? Well, the birds swoop in and eat it up. Uh, the second soil, the second soil is the rocky places. And the problem with the rocky place is that there isn't much soil. It's sort of like Perth, right? It's virtually BYO garden whenever you want to plant absolutely anything because the whole place is just a sand dune. And so what happens is that the seed falls in, it takes root in whatever soil it can find, but because it's shallow, there's nowhere to go but up. And so it grows, but then the scorching Perth sun comes out, and because the plants don't have roots, they shrivel and they die. It's the second soil. Third soil. Third soil is the thorny soil. And this soil is good, but it's compromised because the thorns got there first. And so basically, it's literally a turf wall. They grow up together, neither one kind of really getting the advantage. But, but eventually what happens is the plant never grows and produces grain because the thorns choke it out. And then finally, the fourth soil. The fourth soil is the good soil, uh, nothing but nutrients. So the seed falls in, finds a nice home, it grows up and produces a crop 30, 60 or 100 times what was sown. Now, a typical harvest back then was around five to tenfold. So, so this harvest, a harvest of this magnitude is spectacular. It's, it's not unheard of, but it's sort of bordering on the miraculous at this point. And that's the parable. That, that's all it is. And like we saw before, simple as it might seem, people just didn't get it. They would have known that Jesus was angling at something because, remember, this was an agricultural community. They understood farming and what Jesus was saying was stupid, right? You don't just grab your seed and just scatter it wherever you want, right? That's, that's not a good use of resources. You take your precious, expensive seed and you put it in the place that's guaranteed to produce a crop and a profit, maximise your harvest. So what is it that Jesus is driving at with this ridiculous farming advice? Well, later on in private, as we've already seen, Jesus is with his disciples and he explains the parable's meaning. Uh, And the key to it all there is in verse 14, because he tells us that the seed that the farmer is sowing is the word. Uh, In other words, the word of the gospel. This is the message that Jesus is God's king, the promised Messiah. And if we would escape his judgment, that we must come to him in repentance And rather than turn us away, what Jesus will do is he will welcome us in and forgive us, grant us new life. That's the word. That's the word that's being sown as a seed. And what Jesus is describing in this parable are the various responses people have to that word. So what are they? Let's do another survey. First type of person is like the path. The heart is hard and the seed just bounces off. There's a whole bunch of reasons that this is the case. Uh, Some people are arrogant. Uh, They dismiss the word as superstitious nonsense or or contradictory to reason or whatever it is. I saw this actually in the social sciences toilet last week. I'm sure there's a metaphor in there somewhere. Maybe you can work this one out. I was in there. I was washing my hands after doing my thing. And in the mirror, I saw a guy reading the back of my CU shirt. And that's proof that I'm wearing it. And he saw the proclaiming Jesus. And I saw him in the mirror and he just looked at it and scoffed. He just shook his head. That's arrogance. Other people uh, are a bit more apathetic. They just see the shirt and don't even blink. They just keep moving on. That's the other end of the spectrum. They just don't care. But whatever the reason, Jesus tells us that Satan is at work in these people, taking the word before it can even take root to gain a hearing. That's the first type of person. 
Second type of person is like the rocky soil. Uh, Initially, they're receptive to the message. And verse 16 there actually tells us that they receive it with joy. Now, you might have seen somebody uh, in this category, maybe maybe somebody at a Christian camp. They come to Christ and the emotions are high, but then the Perth sun comes out. They head home, they tell their family, and they're ridiculed. Or they leave their, their Christian school bubble, they head to uni where their tutors and their classmates openly mock Christianity. What happens is they're persecuted because of the word. And especially if they're accountants, they count the cost and they decide that it's too high and they walk away from the faith. It's just easier that way. Third type of person. The third type of person is like the thorny soil. And I think this is the one that I see most often in our context at the CU and at universities. Uh, The third type of person also receives the word, but the thorns creep in. Thorns are things like there in verse 19, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things. And they creep in and they choke you and they make you unfruitful. Now, in our context, that could be any number of things, but let me give you just two. First thorn, uni marks. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard at uni. But for some people, for some Christians, they become so all-consuming that it compromises their priorities. Every time there's an assignment, and there is always an assignment, they stop going to church, they take themselves out from under good Bible teaching, and slowly but surely, they choke. Now, if you want to excel at university, great, go for it, right? Part of godliness is diligence, But please don't make the mistake of thinking that your HD honours God more than your D, especially if it's pulling you away from time that you could be devoting to establishing and maturing your Christian faith and seeing that plant grow. So that's the first thorn, uni marks. Second thorn, and this is the big one, love. Pretty simple, you just start dating a non-Christian. I won't say much here. AFES is having a day on love, marriage and singleness coming up on Saturday, October the 2nd, where we'll go much deeper into this and explore this much more fully. Uh, But I will say this today, at least. If you want one guaranteed way to choke yourself out of the faith, then this is it. Uh, I'm only 32, but I have seen this so many times and I have warned people so many times and virtually everybody I know who has done this is either no longer a Christian or is just bemoaning the fact that they ever went there. Just turned out their desire for a boyfriend or a girlfriend proved stronger than their desire for Christ. And I just want to say it is a death warrant. Don't go there. Don't invite those thorns in. So that's the third type of person. But finally, some time for some happy news. The fourth and final type of person is like the good soil. These are the truly and genuinely converted, those who hear the word and accept it and abide by it. And in doing so, their lives bear fruit. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what that means. Uh, We tend to kind of think that Jesus means evangelistic fruit, you know, like as if like I become a Christian and then 30 people more become Christians because of me. Then we kind of get into this weird battle about, well, I'm I'm the 60 person, well, I'm the 100 person. So you're trying to work out which kind of fruit are you. I don't think that's what Jesus is driving at here. Uh, Evangelistic fruit will be included, but I think that's too narrow. I think what he's saying here is that he's saying that we're talking about a life of godliness. 
This is the bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance, a life that has been truly transformed by the word. And so that's the parable. What do we do with it? How do we listen well and hear the parable as Jesus intended us to? Well, I think there are two things, and this is how we'll close today. One of them is from the point of view of the sower, and the other is from the point of view of the seed. So the first one, uh, from the point of view of the sower, it's there in your outline. The parable teaches us a static truth. Because not everybody who hears the message of the gospel will respond to it. Of the four soils, only one of them successfully bears fruit. The others never make it. And Jesus tells us this because as Christians, his expectation is that we will be out there engaged in the world sowing the seed. And and he wants us to go about that task with our eyes open. In the parable, the sower knows where he's sowing seed. But in the real world, we have no idea. We've got no idea what soil our message is being planted into. And so our task is just go out there and just chuck it everywhere, try and plant it in as many hearts as possible. In fact, one of the things that the parable alerts us to here is that even when things look good, it can shrivel and still be choked out. So we just don't know. And I know this sounds counterintuitive, but this is actually a comfort for us because it reminds us that the one who grows the seed and determines what soil the heart will be is God. That's not on us. Our job is to scatter the seed as much as we can, wherever we can. Just, just lodge it in pockets, in places, in bags. Just, just fill, fill it up in whatever heart we can find because we have no idea where it's landing. And I think that takes the pressure off for us. We've just finished second semester mission uh, and a bunch of you are now reading Mark Uncovered with a non-Christian. And this is so exciting. You know, at the CU prayer meetings, we are praising God and we are praying for their conversion. And as you read Mark Uncover with your friend, your understanding your role is really important. Your role is to prayerfully sow the seed. And beyond that, you have zero control. And so if the person that you're reading with is swooped by Satan or it falls on deaf ears or maybe they stop reading with you, whatever it is, or maybe that person you're reading with becomes a Christian but then faces backlash from their family and then three months later they throw in the towel, I just want to say that that's okay. That is expected. Not everybody who hears the message of the gospel will respond to it. And that's the static truth that counterintuitively encourages us as we evangelise more and more. It takes the pressure off and it presses us more deeply into prayer to the one who can change hearts. So that's the first thing we learn from the parable. The second thing, uh, from the point of view of the seed this time, uh, the parable gives us a dynamic warning. And this, I think, is the main application of the passage Uh, Because the unspoken question, really, of every person who hears and understands this parable is what? What soil am I? Or maybe a better way of phrasing it is, which soil do I want to be? Because remember, we're not being fatalistic here. It's Jesus' expectation that those who have ears to hear can and will respond. And so what that means is that this parable comes to us as a warning, we're given the privileged insider position. We went with the disciples, we're flies on the wall. We get to see more than the rest of the crowds did. Uh, it lays out for us the possibilities of where you as a hearer might end up 
depending on how you listen. And the whole slant of the parable, I think, is to get us to see that it is the good soil that is the soil that we want to be. Because let's be clear, right? Nobody looks at this parable and then decides to follow Jesus and says to themselves, I'm going to be the rocky soil. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody kind of looks at it and goes, oh, you know what? I like the look of that thorny soil. That's the type of soil I'm going to be. No. No, if you've understood the parable properly, you will want the word of God when it comes into your heart and you hear it. You will want it to find good soil. Now, I used to lead on waste study camps. I did them for a whole bunch of years, and one particular year was a real corker. It was fantastic. People were really engaging with the word, and there was a girl called Alex, and she became a Christian. So exciting. And this came uh, in an email that she wrote to me just after the camp. Um, Really quite profound. Just cracked open my St. Andrew's Bible. St. Andrew's was the school that she went to uh, for the first time. And guess where I opened it to? Matthew 13. Now, if you don't know what's in Matthew 13, it's it's the Matthew parallel of Mark 4. This is the parable of the sower. Uh, She says there on the bottom line, I'm well acquainted with the parable of the sower. I can only pray that I fall in good soil. Now, that was 2012, and she is no longer a Christian. Now, when that happened, I had to pay attention to the static truth as I mourned that loss. Not everybody who hears the message of the gospel will respond to it. But what she had not done was pay attention to the dynamic warning. In her case, it was persecution. She was unwilling to stand for God's views on sexuality. She was unprepared. And I want to ask the question to us today, how will you avoid a similar fate? How will you ensure that when you hear the word of God, it finds good soil? Well, the way that you do that is by guarding yourself against the threats that we see in the other soils. Uh, First of all, thinking about the first soil, you actually listen. When Jesus speaks, you hear him in the Bible, you take him seriously. See, the man at Memcor didn't. He had all the head knowledge, but he was unwilling to take the step to respond with personal action. He didn't listen. Second, you prepare yourself for persecution. Uh, If this isn't one of your memorised Bible verses, it should become one quickly. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will suffer for your faith. That is a given. That's actually a promise. So send your roots deep. Drink deeply from God's word where you can, wherever you can. Take every opportunity to mature your faith, especially now as a uni student when you actually have the time and the flexibility to do so. Third, guard yourself against the temptations of this world. And this is the hard one uh, because there's just so many. Uh, And the ones that get you will not be the ones that get me and and vice versa. So, So you've got to ask yourself, what is it that I desire so much that it could pull me away from Christ? Might be love, might be success, whatever it is. The answer to that question is the desire that you need to put to death that you need to hold at arm's length and keep away. Let me finish uh, by saying this. I want you to notice that regardless of which soil you're guarding yourself against, the solution is always the same thing. When you hear God speak, you listen. That those who have ears to hear, hear.